0: Listener Production.
1: A warning. This episode is particularly confronting and discusses domestic violence, sexual assault and drug-facilitated assault. Information and support for anyone affected by these issues is available in Australia at one respect dial one 737 732 or visit 1-800-RESPECT.org.au. If you're in Australia and need immediate help, dial triple zero. If you're outside Australia, see the show notes for a list of support services. Welcome to Crime Insiders Forensics. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So I thought... Why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. This week, learn about what happens when a sexual assault is reported.
0: The police will ultimately refer to us If the assault has happened recently and there is a chance of finding DNA, that's usually if it's happened within the last couple of days.
1: I'm joined by forensic physician Micah Moller. Micah will walk us through the process from how and who to report an assault to, what happens in the forensic medical examination, and how she then deals with the legal system on behalf of the survivor. We're doing things a little differently this episode. Rather than focusing on a real-life crime that's been solved with forensic science, Micah discusses several scenarios that are common in her day-to-day work as a forensic physician. It's important to note that while these scenarios are relatively frequent, Micah is not referring to any of the survivors she or any of her colleagues have examined. To begin, Micah explains the difference between forensic pathology and forensic medicine.
0: So clinical forensic medicine is a branch of uh, forensic medicine where people who are living are examined and um, usually those people might have been affected by interpersonal violence, violence such as sexual assault or physical assault. There are also other parts of clinical forensic medicine that involve traffic medicine, toxicology, but uh, certainly a large proportion of the work that we do would involve interpersonal violence and separate to pathologists, we examine people who are living and those people may be victim survivors of violence, but they may also be alleged perpetrators of violence also. Who is your duty of care towards when you've got police and
1: lawyers and other people potentially involved and partners? Who
0: is your duty of care towards? So the patient is the centre of the interaction and the care pathway. The patient is the person who's presenting and it's the relationship between the clinician and the patient that forms the entire basis of the interaction. Having said that, though, there is also there are also dual obligations and there are obligations towards the investigation and the justice process as well, and there needs to be due process and impartiality at that stage. But in terms of a clinical clinician-patient interaction, the patient is at the centre of that, and that interaction does need to be trauma-informed and patient-focused. And confidential? Confidentiality is a primary central tenet of any clinician-patient interaction. There are certain limitations to confidentiality, and some of them are more relevant in clinical forensic medicine than they might be in other areas of medicine. And those limitations relate around, for example, a duty to disclose if there's mandatory reporting. Um, So if there's harm to a person who is a child or if there's harm to a person who is in a vulnerable setting, like a resident of an institution, like a nursing home. The other limitations are if that person might be of imminent risk of harm to themselves or others. And there are also limitations of confidentiality if there is a legal authority that requires access to that information. And in a forensic setting, that may very well be the courts. And so it is the case that the notes that are made during a clinical forensic medical interaction or forensic medical examination are sometimes subpoenaed by the courts, which is why we pay very special attention to make sure that any information that we ask of a patient, a victim survivor, it is relevant to the question that is asked. We don't ask any extra information about things which are sensitive and don't need to be asked. Things that are asked are asked for a particular reason because it is necessary to guide the examination and to feed into that investigative process and also to help them with their medical needs after what has happened to them. It's a a very big scope and
1: it's so difficult to sort of hone in on one thing in particular. To start with, can I ask, how do you become involved A woman, for example, we'll use a woman just for the moment, believes she was sexually assaulted. Who does she call
0: first and
1: how do you become involved?
0: So if a person believes that they've been sexually assaulted, they may choose different ways of disclosing that. They may tell a friend. They may present to a healthcare provider like a GP or an emergency department, or they may go straight to police. If they go to a hospital or a general practitioner, then they may still be encouraged to go to the police and then the police will ultimately refer to us if the assault has happened recently and there is a chance of finding DNA. That's usually if it's happened within the last couple of days. And dependent on whether this person has injuries
1: significantly too, I know you can have certain degrees of trauma as well post assault, which need to be medically treated and attended to?
0: Yes, so certainly if there's been injuries and that's part of what happened to that person, it's really important to document them because having the injuries is a really important part of the event and it's important to document them because it's really powerful evidence. Sometimes there may not be that much evidence from the sexual assault component, either because the DNA is not Able to be found, or because the defense of the alleged offender might be that the sexual act was consensual. But having physical injuries is a really powerful form of evidence that's really important to document. So that is certainly part of our documentation process. But it may be that the person who's been assaulted will present to hospital because of their injuries, and then the disclosure of sexual assault may happen afterwards. But similarly,
1: People often think if there aren't injuries, then they can't have been assaulted. But an absence of injuries doesn't necessarily exclude sexual assault, does it?
0: Absolutely. And that's really important for people to be aware of, that it's very, very common to not have genital injuries after a sexual assault and that the absence of injuries does not exclude that something has happened. So if somebody thinks that they've been assaulted, then um, there are various avenues. They go to their um, GP hospital, they may go directly to the police, and then... There are various pathways that would refer, that would lead to a forensic medical examination. That would usually happen in some kind of forensic medical examination suite that might be ex- situated in a hospital often, or there are other dedicated suites. And that's where the forensic medical examination would usually happen.
1: For younger people who are fit and healthy and have never had to go to an emergency department... So if they suspect their drink has been spiked or they've been
0: assaulted, what do they actually do? So the emergency departments are set up to look after anyone who walks in through the door. And so there will be a triage and reception process whereby there'll be a nurse usually who will find out what the reason is that they've come into hospital. And if that person who's been assaulted is comfortable in disclosing that, then that's a safe person they can tell that to. And they just need to say something as simple as, I think I've been assaulted or I think my drink's been spiked. And then that will activate in most hospitals particular pathways. um, And that might involve um, taking that person to a private area, asking them questions about their safety or whether they want to involve the police. And it may also then lead to a forensic medical examination if that's indicated at the time. So, really, all that they need to do—I say all—it's still a very big thing to take that active step and to do that. But they they present and they feel safe to do so. Tell the the reception of triage nurse um, that they've been assaulted, and then hopefully the rest will be activated and. With their input, of course. Um not that they're on a roller on a conveyor belt they can't get off, but they'll be guided through the process from there on. When anyone goes to
1: one of the specific suites or the cottage that's attached to the hospital or wherever, how does it differ from a normal examination room?
0: So all of the forensic suites are designed to be as trauma-informed as possible. So they'll have more comfortable sitting arrangements. They'll be private, separate. They're away from the hustle and bustle of a busy emergency department. There's not people walking in changing bins or sheets or whatever. It's a very personal, private environment. Most examinations are done by a a clinician with the support of a counsellor advocate um, so that the person's um, psychological needs are wholly supported by specialists in that area whilst the clinician is also doing the, the the examination and the evidence collection. The usual process is we'll ask the person about what happened to them, um, so little bit of information about the event itself. That can sometimes be challenging because that person may have already have spoken to a number of other people about what's happened to them. They may have spoken to the people they first disclosed to and the police. Um, So we try to focus the um, history very much on what is relevant. We're not trying to find out any any information that is not relevant to the examination, both to sort of limit the scope of what is recorded and also just to make sure that um, that person's privacy is protected. We would then ask them a little bit about their medical history so that we can tailor their care afterwards to what's relevant for them in terms of whether or not they need emergency contraception or any other forms of medication. And then based on the combination of what we've understood has happened to them and their medical needs, we would then offer a particular form of examination and that may be a full top-to-toe examination looking for any injuries on in their body, maybe a genital examination, maybe a collection of samples, it may be um, a collection of toxicology, it may be photographs and then we would go ahead and conduct that examination with the person's consent. The designated suites,
1: how are they maintained and cleaned and how do you prevent cross-contamination from one victim to the next
0: being examined in that same room? So the suites are usually set away from the hustle and bustle of the main department. So the only people who gain access to them are the ones who are involved in the examination. So there shouldn't be that traffic of people people coming in all the time, shedding their DNA. So there is that uh, protection. They are cleaned between each case uh, with special cleaning materials um, that break down the DNA. And at the start of each case, the practitioner will clean those surfaces that they come into contact with, so the bed, the patient chair, the light source and the examination trolley, in addition, every jurisdiction uh, will use some form of a special kit which provides a DNA-free surface on which the practitioner can work. So the practitioner will then also wear a gown, which is DNA-free, gloves, which are DNA-free, work on a surface, which is DNA-free, put a couch protector on the bed, which is also DNA-free, and the patient wears a gown, which is DNA-free. And therefore, that reduces the very significantly the risk of any contamination and then all of the components of the kit they are also processed in a way that the uh, dna has been eliminated from them so as to minimize the risk of any contamination from any other source be that via the practitioner or from the room to introduce it to the to the samples
1: these aren't your normal patients that come in and you don't i mean Always I'd re- greet patients with a smile and, and a hello. How do you greet
0: somebody who's just been assaulted? So we treat every patient on their own terms and in a trauma-informed way. Um, but, you know, it's still a person in front of you who needs care and focus on that person's needs at that particular time. Um, we acknowledge what's happened to them. We validate their experience and we listen and respond with empathy and understanding of the trauma that they've experienced and are led by them at their pace as to what they wish to have happen during the examination so that they regain a sense of control given the fact that what's happened to them is the ultimate um, negation of their ability to consent and have control. So a very important part of the examination process is to give that sense of control and autonomy back to them. And we provide guidance and information and support throughout that examination process. But ultimately the choice of what happens and the type of examination that person has is their choice. So there are some less invasive
1: ways that you can try and collect evidence as well?
0: Absolutely. There are there's a wide spectrum of ways in which an examination can be conducted and it's our role to provide that information so that the person can make the choice as to, you know, which what is what is reasonable and what what they think is the right thing for them at that time. So another example might be that if somebody was assaulted whilst they were affected by drugs or alcohol, then we can talk about the advantages of doing toxicology tests. However, that usually involves a blood test which has some discomfort or there might be things in the blood that are found that are maybe not relevant or maybe sensitive. And so we talk about those implications as well and then the person decides whether or not they wish to have that toxicology blood test or not. How do you handle cultural sensitivities with people
1: who've been assaulted, who... For other religious, modesty, privacy reasons, they may be not understood by their own communities if they've been sexually assaulted or, in fact, it could damage their standing in the community or marriage prospects. How do you deal with those sensitivities?
0: Yeah, so we recognise that there are particular beliefs and attitudes around sexual violence, in lots of different communities and in the wider community. And in terms of responding to any person, but including people from a particular cultural, linguistically diverse background, we assure complete privacy uh, within those confines of the limits of confidentiality. We um, provide access to translators, if relevant, that are not from directly within their community. Um, So sometimes that requires having a telephone interpreter. So it's not if it's someone from a very small community that is known to them. We validate and support people and tell them, or tell them we validate and support people in their experience of what's happened and tell them that, you know, what's happened is wrong, even if there may be other influences or other perspectives that might conflict with that, um, so as to reassure people that they have every right to feel safe and they have every right to seek help. Um, but the other considerations is sometimes we do need to adapt the examinations to suit anybody from any background, but if that includes a culturally, linguistically diverse background, there might be things that we might offer to do differently. If the person's not had a uh, any form of a Pap smear examination before, for example, we might provide particular um, support around around how an, a speculum might be introduced, or they might be able to do it themselves, for example, or elect not to have a speculum. We can, in within the limits of resourcing and staffing, we can offer a choice of practitioner gender. If um, Uh, A patient would prefer a practitioner of a particular gender. And so these are all ways in which we would support any patient, including those who might come from a culturally and linguistically diverse background.
1: Following an assault, all the television shows, uh, the Law and Orders and SVUs and and the biggest shows, all want to know if anyone's showered and trying to stop them showering post-assault and even to the point of not rinsing their mouth out if there was possible oral penetration. Is this a myth or what do you recommend?
0: Well, it's a little bit of both. Um, So certainly there is a... DNA and biological evidence degradation, loss of evidence pathway and there are things that contribute to that loss happening faster and those are things like washing drinking and also things that are bodily functions like menstruation or defecation. These are all things that do impact the way that DNA and biological evidence is retained on the body, but what we always tell people much in the way that uh, medical needs are paramount, patient comfort and individual comfort is also paramount, and it's just not okay for somebody to not be able to drink um, for an extended period of time if that's how long it takes to have those samples collected. Having said that, though, there are ways in which um, certain samples can be collected until So that evidence is retained until there is a definitive forensic medical examination. So after an oral assault, for example, there are a lot of jurisdictions that have variations of what we call an early evidence kit. And so the police might have a little vial of water that that person uses to rinse their mouth out and spit into a container. And then that can preserve that oral evidence uh, so that they can drink to comfort until a clinical forensic practitioner is able to get definitive swabs, similarly with um, going to the toilet, for example. So there are ways in which some DNA can be collected or preserved until there's a definitive examination. So a little bit of both. There is a loss of DNA over time and with intervening activities, but it's never okay for a person to be uncomfortable or distressed as a result of a action to try and preserve that evidence you know and 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 it's a very natural response for people to want to rinse their mouth out or have a shower and it's certainly not a reason for an examination not to occur um, particularly if there's been a penetrative assault so vaginal or anal penetration then we can absolutely still collect samples from from inside the vagina or anus after there has been washing that doesn't affect our ability to take those samples at all if somebody
1: is needing emergency care Are you ever called to the bedside to actually take forensic evidence because the primary motive is to save that person's life and do no harm and minimise damage and obviously collection of evidence is vital but that's a secondary function to saving a life. Would you ever be called to go to theatre or into an emergency department to take samples under those circumstances?
0: Look, I think what you've said is absolutely right and emergency care and therapeutic care is absolutely paramount and forensic issues are secondary for a number of different reasons. The scenario that you've outlined in terms of taking emergency samples varies from... Case to case, and it might depend on the particular circumstances, if the person, if it's an emergency situation, but the person does have capacity and is able to say what's happened and they're able to engage in the process, then depending on the circumstances, that may be possible. Um, But if it's a true emergency situation, then there may not even be the timeframe to do that. We do sometimes attend alongside the therapeutic treating medical team and we might do a joint examination in an operating theatre, for example. Um, But sometimes there are alternatives. Um, So a lot of hospitals have their own photographers, for example, who might be available to take photographs of particular injuries if they're going to be stitched up and not able to be interpreted afterwards. But if it's collection of specimens, particularly if they're genital specimens, then that is usually something, at least in our setting, that we we would do ourselves. And if there's not an opportunity to do it, and if the surgery or whatever the emergency procedure is, is likely to interfere with that, sometimes we do it at the same time. How do you maintain the chain of custody then with that evidence? So, the samples can never be left unattended in a way that might expose them to contamination. So, from the time that they are collected, they are packaged and then sealed. That is then formally handed over by means of a document that is signed by the relevant parties until they take it into their custody and then account for it until they pass it on to another person, be it the laboratory. So from our collection, it would usually go to the police and then from the police to the laboratory, and then the laboratory would tend to keep hold of the sample until until the results are reproduced in court or anyone else needs to have access to it. Can you,
1: get consent to take anonymous samples which still go to the police so that then they get an idea that this person is committing more than one crime. So is that, a possib- is, that, is that a possibility for you if, because your duty of care is to the patient or the surviving victim, can they still assist if they're not prepared to go to court themselves?
0: So a lot of people do wish to report because they are worried about um, future perpetration or preventing this from happening to somebody else. And there are reporting mechanisms for that, in particular apps and pathways. In terms of an examination, we don't have a concrete pathway for someone to do so completely anonymously. But there may be ways in which someone who has been examined but doesn't want their particular case to proceed, but they want the information from their case to proceed, to discuss it with the police so that their identity may be protected in a certain way. But that would not necessarily be part of our forensic medical examination process we would we don't have a specific way for that to be accessed anonymously so there can be anonymous reporting through various pathways and there can be identity protection pathways through the court process but that is outside of the particular uh, role that we have. But I think it's still helpful for people to
1: know that they're not just on this conveyor belt that they can't get off or modify.
0: Absolutely. No, absolutely. No, thank you for flagging that and prompting me for that. Absolutely. So that person has control over the information and their story throughout the investigative process. And the police also have... They don't want to drag people through an investigative process, and particularly if that's going to be harmful to them and harmful to their health. So it would be highly unusual for a case to proceed without that person being comfortable with it. So what often, um, what can happen is that a person may make a report to police and then they might have an examination but then decided actually, no, they don't want to make a statement, or at least not at that stage. And so those samples may be kept either in a laboratory or somewhere else, and they'll be secure. And then if at a later stage that person does say, look, I do want this investigation to proceed, then the police may be able to activate that. Or if the samples were stored through another pathway, through a non-police pathway, they may be activated into the police pathway. Conversely, if that person says, look... I'm glad those samples were taken, but actually I found another way to, to, to move forward and it doesn't involve the the criminal justice pathway and I wish these samples to be destroyed. Then if the samples have not yet gone to police, then they can do that. If they have gone to police, then they can have a discussion with police about those samples not being processed any further. I think that's that's a very powerful thing because...
1: If you're talking about empowering people who have been traumatised, having make to make those decisions on the spot, it would be difficult for anybody. It's really hard. Yes. So someone who may be affected in so many ways and and really in disbelief, in denial, in fear, genuine fear, if the... Assault was by somebody they knew. Obviously, that person knows things about them, locations. There's so many things that would influence, that do influence a person's decision as to how to proceed at that moment. But the fact that it's not just this you know, unstoppable force that suddenly starts and the patient is dragged along with whether they want to or not. I think that's really important for people to know
0: that they still have a say at various stages. Absolutely. And there are ways in that that can cross. So, for example, somebody can have the police involved but then decide that that's not the right pathway for them or they cannot have the police involved and activate that at a later stage. So it goes both ways.
1: And I do have a question about rural settings. Someone who has been assaulted and they live rurally, they may have two-, three-, four-hour drive to the nearest health provider. What do you recommend for them if they, for example, have been um, genitally assaulted and fluid can leak, should they, for example, put a pad on before they start driving or going? If they rinse their own mouth out, should they keep the mouthwash in their own jar? Or is, is anything better than nothing that they can do in those few hours before they get to help?
0: Well, acknowledging the... Limitations on access to lots of different resources in rural and remote settings. Most jurisdictions will have telephone support for people who have been assaulted and have some form of sexual assault crisis line. So one option is if a person has been assaulted to call triple zero or to call a crisis line and there'll be an experienced practitioner who can talk them through the particular actions relevant to their particular situation. But in broad terms, certainly if there is things that are obvious evidence, um, then it's a good idea to keep hold of them. So things like if a person's been assaulted with a tampon inside, they can potentially, if they're comfortable, leave that tampon in. But if they feel they need to remove that tampon, similarly as we discussed, that it was just something that they, they can't, Tolerate being inside of them, then it's better if that they keep hold of it rather than perhaps flush it or something. Um, similarly, if there's a condom that they believe that has been used as during the assault, then it's a good idea to keep hold of it if it can be kept hold of in its original place and not interfered with. So, if it's if the assault happened at the person's house and the condom is in or the tampon is in the bin, then it should be left there, and then the police can gather it. Um, but if it's in a setting where there's reasonable belief it might not be retained there, then an option would be to take it with them. But I would probably, I'll probably urge anyone who's been recently assaulted and has recognised that they need help to seek help by telephone and to receive that guidance that's specific for them at that time and then be advised about, you know, whether they should wait for an ambulance, whether the, a police officer can come and take them or the ambulance can come and take them to the nearest centre or whether they it's OK for them to drive or whatever the circumstances might be.
1: One of the things that I found particularly alarming is that um, with a lot of young males being exposed to porn as a lot of their sexual education, um, I remember reading recently that something like 50% of young women under 18 had been strangled during sex, consensual sex, and it's as though that's now becoming part of what's perceived to be normal sexual activity. Are you seeing it more in assaults?
0: So strangulation is unfortunately very common during sexual assaults. We're becoming as a community, forensic and non-forensic, I think as a wider community uh, and forensic medicine within the wider community more aware of strangulation as part of sexual assault, both in domestic violence and other settings. Um, We are... Seeing more strangulation. I also think we're better at asking about strangulation. I think we're better, the police are better at asking, the hospitals are better at asking, we're better at asking. And it's a standard question that we ask. So we are seeing more. And I think it's probably a combination of asking the question, but possibly there may be other factors leading to its increasing prevalence as well. And you've alluded to one of them. I think that is that's a very very possible reason for for part of the increase. Do you
1: also find that you're seeing some victims who've consented to one sexual act and yet have been violated in another sexual act that they did not consent to?
0: Yes. It's not uncommon for for patients that we see to have had some form of consensual contact with a person, and that the non consensual act was in that context. And what we we always say to patients is that, you know, the consent is specific; it can be withdrawn at any time, and if something was non-consensual, then it was non-consensual and it's irrelevant as to whether or not there was any other consensual acts before or after. The fact that that particular act was non-consensual, that is what is not okay and it's a crime. Um, So the types of scenarios that we might see, and I think we've discussed that all of the scenarios that we might be discussing are uh, hypothetical. I don't want any of your listeners to think that we're using people's real stories of things that really happened to them in this setting. Um, so these are sort of conglomerate or hypothetical scenarios, but they're based in in are based in situations that we do see. They're very common too, because we want to protect
1: the survivors. These are real people who are still functioning, surviving, coping. And we're not talking about anyone before the courts. We're not talking about any cases that can be identified whatsoever.
0: Absolutely. Um, um, So one scenario that that might happen in cases that are referred to us is that a person consents to having sex with a condom, but that a condom is either tampered with or withdrawn or not put on at all. And that the person realises that a condom wasn't worn and that was non-consensual. And so that is a very, that's not an infrequent scenario. And that behaviour is called stealthing and it's illegal and it's a sexual crime. And we would perform an examination exactly the same way as any other kind of examination. The other scenario that might happen is that a person has consented to having penile-vaginal intercourse and then is raped anally or orally, or they can send to oral um, sex and then are penetrated vaginally. And that's, that's rape, that's a crime, and that is not okay. It always astonishes me. I hear sort of people of um, the next
1: generation often speaking very judgmentally about women, in the public eye who come forward about sexual assaults and, for example, say, oh, if so-and-so was in a toilet with a man, of course she's consented. But it doesn't occur to them that there's different forms of sexual assault and
0: different consent for each one. Nor um, consenting to an act on one occasion imply consent on another occasion or even from one minute to the next consent can be withdrawn at any time including during the um during the sexual act itself and that is all ethically and legally bound up with what sexual consent is it is specific to the time the place and the person so that is that is something that as a community we've got to gain some greater awareness of and your podcast no doubt will help contribute to that as of lots of other lots of other community education efforts so it's an ongoing conversation in terms of drug facilitated sexual assaults are you seeing more so drug facilitated and alcohol facilitated assaults are common the most common drug that's used to facilitate assault is alcohol either by The alcohol that a person has consumed themselves recreationally for their own enjoyment or additional alcohol that somebody else, a perpetrator, might have added to their drink by giving an extra large shot or an extra measure or giving them an alcoholic drink instead of a non-alcoholic drink. In terms of drink spiking, that's certainly something that happens as well in lots of different settings, in clubs, in house parties, and lots of lots of settings. Detecting the drugs involved is sometimes difficult because they actually get metabolized or broken up by the body pretty quickly. So after 24 hours, the chance of finding anything in the blood is pretty small. We've got a bit more time to find things in the urine, so a couple of days, so we can collect urine. But that doesn't necessarily give any information about the particular dose or the concentration. So for that, we really need to um, have the opportunity to sample the, the blood. And particularly for alcohol, what we can sometimes do is if we find a small amount of alcohol within 24 hours, then we can back calculate based on the body's metabolism of alcohol, what the Blood alcohol concentration could have been at the time of the event and that can give you some indication of that person's ability to consent in a similar way that people can be impaired above 0.05 to the level of driving a car. Um, you can make similar similar kind of comparisons in terms of what that level person's level of function might be. With other drugs, that correlation between the concentration of the drug and the person's function is a little bit less clear In the urine, unfortunately, we can just comment on about the the drug being present or not present, which in cases of drink spiking might be very important evidence in itself. If um, something is found in the urine, that person has no reason for it to be there, that it's not part of their regular medication or something that they know that they've taken. Cognitively, drug spiking, people can have memory
1: lapses. They can be vomiting. They can be quite ill feeling as well. How do you go about gaining consent under those circumstances?
0: That's a really important question. We discussed earlier that consent is a really important part of the forensic medical examination process because, not only because of basic principles around medical ethics but particularly in cases of sexual assault where the negation of consent was part of the, the, the act of violence. So having really... Informed consent is a really important part. So if somebody doesn't have the capacity to provide that informed consent, meaning that they don't have the ability to absorb that information and retain it and weigh it in the balance and make a decision, then there are two options available. One is to delay the examination until they've regained that capacity and that ability to give informed consent. But that does sometimes mean that the passage of time means that there is some loss of evidence, particularly as we've discussed in persons been drug affected, that metabolism might happen and you have a lower chance of detecting things. So sometimes the hospital or the police can help with Collecting um, some urine, or the hospital may have already have taken some bloods if that person was in hospital for something related to what's happened. And those bloods can then be analysed at a later date. Once that person's regained uh, their capacity and it says, Yes, um, I believe that something has happened and I wish for that sample to be analysed. The other option, if the person is not expected to regain capacity, and I'm very Tragically, sometimes that does happen, either because of an underlying condition which impairs their capacity because they've got an intellectual disability or a cognitive impairment, or because either related to the event or unrelated to the event, they've ended up in an impaired state, like a, an intensive care unit, then another authority may be required to make that decision about the sample and the, the, the examination process. And that authority can be a court, for example, or an alternative decision maker. We've tried to debunk some myths today. Is, is
1: there one, one myth you'd like to correct or debunk
0: about forensic medicine that you'd like people to know? Thanks for asking the question. Look, I'd say that violence can happen to anyone. It doesn't necessarily look like the way it does on TV with somebody jumping out of the bushes at three o'clock in the morning. It happens in people's homes. It it happens um, between people who know each other and people in relationships with each other, and it's important to unmask that uh, and demystify that so that it's okay for people to reach out to seek help and to recognise that what's happened to them is not okay. How do you cope
1: doing the work that you do? Because it involves enormous care, enormous vigilance, and like we have said, your duty of care is to the person in that room with you. So how do you cope and how do you go home at the end of the day and process ready to go again?
0: Oh, thanks, Catherine, for asking that question. I mean, it's true that violence has many victims. There's obviously the direct victim, victim victim-survivor, but violence affects everybody from the people around that victim, their children or friends and relatives or their partner. But it also extends to the people who interact with the patient, victim, survivor as well, including including practitioners. And so, I think as practitioners, we do have to be aware of the potential vicarious effects of the trauma that we are exposed to. That involves being mindful of looking for signs in ourselves, or well, first of all, having a really good basis of self-care um, and an awareness of what promotes our own well-being through rest and relationships and maintaining those as best as we can and then being in tune to when those things are out of kilter, so um, perhaps not not feeling quite right and being in tune of those effects in our colleagues as well and talking to colleagues about that, talking about the times when things don't feel quite right and giving each other permission and ourselves permission to take a step back, maybe do a different type of case for a while or refocus our directions in another way. Um, so this is, I guess, all part of our collective self-care and well-being strategy that is really important in forensic medicine, as it is in other areas of medicine or frontline work as well.
1: Do you think this is something you can do long term or do you think you'll have a finite amount of time and then need to step back a little bit.
0: Personally, I'm passionate about this work. I think it's an enormous privilege to be able to engage with people at a time of crisis and hopefully be part of something that may help to improve their outcome and also provide some help to the justice system that will in turn help improve the outcomes and strengthen the community response by you know, holding perpetrators to account. And being part of that, I think, is enormously rewarding. And I think from my own perspective, with the appropriate support um, of my family and my colleagues and being able to balance all of those um, stresses, I would love to continue to do this for decades to come if
1: I can. Thank you very much for everything you do. And um, yeah, I just think the community is very grateful for all your efforts and, and for you progressing medicine and still caring for victims as well.
0: Thank you, Catherine, for the invitation and for all that you do to promote the work of forensic medicine and helping to inform the community so that ultimately these acts will become less and less Common and less and less tolerated.
1: Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly.